All right, one evening, somewhere in our second or fourth year planning Redeemer, the main sewer line connecting to our house, our very first house together that we purchased as husband and wife, 8224 Mosswood Drive, Waco, Texas, uh, that sewer line belched. Now, to you, that might not seem like a big deal, and I wish I could come and report to you that it wasn't a big deal. But when the sewer line belched, what it did is that it sent raw sewage like a chocolate tsunami pouring out of every toilet and tub in our house. And for the first time in my life, I was actually thankful with a family of seven that we only had two toilets, right? Um, The way Nancy and I were alerted to this unnatural disaster was one of our children, probably about three or four at the time, was laughing and saying, Daddy, look, Daddy, look, chocolate water everywhere. (laughs) The raw sewage was running down the hallway because it already soaked the master bedroom. It already soaked the baby's room. It already soaked the kids' rooms. And did I tell you those were carpeted rooms? Oh, yes, this is getting more beautiful as we tell it. And then it was running down the hall, and it converged with the toilet in the guest room or in the guest part of the house, and it converged right there. And Paul Revere, the Paul Revere child, the British are coming child, he's standing right in the midst of that convergence, telling us what's happened. Um, I won't go into all the gory details. Let's just say it was a very long night. We cleaned it up as best we could, our dear friends, uh, the Gibsons. Uh, came over, Todd and Gretchen, they helped. We got the kids in the car to spend the night at the hotel. I was on the phone with the restoration companies trying to figure out if someone's awake, someone will come to our rescue this late at night. If you have a restoration company, you can make a lot of money if you stay open like two in the morning, okay? Uh, So anyhow, I have to leave a message and I'm leaving on the voicemail towards the end of the message about, you know, telling them where I live and how to contact me. And then I say, in Jesus name, amen. I just say that I look over at my wife her eyes are this big and she just busts out laughing so some poor employee the next morning is going to hit voicemail and think that there's some religious quack that lives at 8224 Mosswood Drive right oh my word I mean you should have seen it while I'm saying it I wake up and I try to start grabbing those words come back. It's easy to go through the motions, isn't it? (laughs) Ow. It's very easy to affirm right beliefs about God and still have your heart disconnected from those beliefs. It's easy to do the right things while your heart is someplace else. It is easy to be orthodox about the resurrection. It is easy to affirm the right beliefs about the resurrection. It's easy to have a good experience when you think about the resurrection and still have the resurrection not connect to your heart. I mean, how can that happen? This is the single, the single most definitive, redemptive deliverance in the history of the world and we don't connect to it or it doesn't connect to certain parts of our lives how can that happen the reason for the disconnect is pretty straightforward and according to our passage uh, this morning it's real clear what it is so I want you to stand for the hearing of God's word and we're going to find out what it is 
The reading is in Mark chapter 15, starting in the 24th verse. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph and Salome. And then in chapter 16, starting in the first verse, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had, all, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right hand, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Oh, Jesus, we acknowledge that you're the king and we acknowledge that um, we need you to unleash your spirit on us this morning to open our eyes and open our hearts to the resurrection. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Our focus this morning is on Mark 16, 1 through 8, the resurrection. Uh, the crucifixion passages are just that, to set up the resurrection. Here's what you need to see about the crucifixion passages. If you got your bulletin, look in there. You just can kind of scan it real quick. There's the religious leaders, there's the Roman leaders like Pilate, uh, there's the ordinary church-going Israelite involved here, there's the ordinary non-church-going Roman involved here, uh, there's those who pass by while Jesus is dying who are involved here, 
And there are the soldiers who are involved here. All these folks are circling the resur- are circling the crucifixion. All of them did not expect a resurrection. Not one of them. And why should they? Because the Greco-Roman worldview in that day saw a resurrection as being impossible. Uh, why? Because salvation for a Greco-Roman person, for an ancient person in those days, and salvation for them as salvation for us is some form of ultimate happiness, some form of ultimate comfort, some form of ultimate uh, flourishing and freedom, uh, whatever that is. For them, uh, it was deliverance from the body, from the physical material world. It wasn't a resurrection of the body. The body and the material and the physical world was a prison that they needed to be set free from because the body Uh, was bad. It was the source of weakness and corruption. It's the source of where things always fall apart in our lives. In other words, things were falling apart in that world just like it does today. They said the problem was the body, the physical world, the material world. Uh, The spirit or the soul or the immaterial was good. That's the higher self. That's the better self. That's the good self, right? Uh, Salvation is freedom from the prison of the body. So what about the Hebrew worldview, though? Well, the Old Testament was a little different. It was saying, no, no, the physical world, the body uh, is not bad. It's good. God made it all. It's good, right? But Judaism did not have a notion, though, no concept of one lone individual resurrection in the middle of human history. Now, there was a concept, and they would argue, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, particularly the Pharisees, they would banter back and forth about a general resurrection at the end of human history. Uh, And they would argue about whether it's just those that are alive at the time or those that were dead. Uh, But there was a concept of a general resurrection, but there is no concept of a special individual resurrection of one special person in the middle of human history. In the ancient world, the resurrection was a foreign worldview. It wasn't on anyone's textbook. It wasn't in... Socrates philosophy lessons it wasn't found in any ancient writing no one expected a resurrection okay well, what about the women in 16 1 through what is it 8 and what about Jesus's own disciples did they expect a resurrection let's look at verse 1 that gives the answer for the women when the Sabbath was passed Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him they were going to anoint what A dead person, not a living person. And then what were they talking about? What were they concerned about? What were they worried about while they're doing that? Oh, that stone. Who's going to roll away that huge stone that seals the tomb of the dead? They weren't worried about Jesus trying to get out. They were worrying about how are we going to get in to a dead man to anoint him. So the women did not expect a resurrection. All right, what about the disciples? Okay, the men, the men, Uh, listen what the angel says to the women in verse seven, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, why do they got to go tell them? Oh, they're not there. Okay, that's right. They're not there that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, the original language, the original Greek will tell you that this is this. It would go like this as he continually told you. It wasn't like a one time thing. We already know because we've been studying Mark that Jesus Three times, very clearly, in 8, 9, and 10, said, Listen, I am going to die, and on the third day, look for me. I will rise from the dead. 
right? So, given all of that, why aren't the disciples there with the women? It's the third day. Nobody expects a resurrection around here. Not even those who were taught it. Not even those that were sitting down in a classroom continuously while Jesus rationally and intellectually explained it to them. They didn't even expect one. Now there's one other group Mark wants to single out here. Do you know what group that is? It's certainly the original hearers of this gospel. That would be those in Rome, but also the hearers down through the generations. So that would be you and me. Do we expect a resurrection? Martin Luther, those of you who know who he is, he was a bombastic, brilliant, breathtaking powerhouse of the Protestant Reformation. You know what he says? He doesn't mince words. He says, no. <laughs> no. No, we don't expect a resurrection either. Why? Well, I'm currently reading Alistair McGrath's definitive work, don't you love that, on Luther's theology of the cross, uh, his theological breakthrough that he experienced. And he says that Luther believed that the Bible taught that every single human being is spiritually unable. There's a spiritual inability in every one of us. And what that means when it, when it goes to the, the faculty of seeing spiritually, he says because we're spiritually uh, unable or powerless and helpless and lost, we can't see spiritual realities. We can't interpret them rightly. Now, I just need to do a timeout real quick. For the Bible and for Luther, though, spiritual realities uh, were not like the angels with their translucent angels, uh, with their clouds playing on their harps, and meanwhile, the natural world, the physical world around, that's the real reality, right? No, for, for, um, for Luther and for the Bible, uh, it's more like Ed Welch's metaphor, the, the natural world is like the shell of an Indianapolis race car, 500 race car. And the spiritual realities are the engine and the superstructure. It's where all the action is, right? So keep that in mind. Luther's saying to that realm, to where all the action is, human beings are spiritually blind. In fact, this is how he says it. Humanity dwells in a theological twilight in a world of half-light, half-truths. Our preconceptions of God in general and of God's righteousness in particular as seen in the cross and in the resurrection, he says, are unreliable and confused at best, like a broken bone which has set incorrectly. That's how our spiritual faculty is. So spiritual blindness is why God never leaves it up to us to interpret what he does in human history. That's why we have the Bible. What's the Bible? It's a collection of all the redemptive works and acts and performances and things that God does in history. And then it's his messages or his own interpretations of those acts. So when he does something in the Old Testament, he sends prophets to say, this is what it means. He never leaves it up to those that see it to say, I wonder what this means. Because we'll get it wrong every time, right? So... If left to ourselves, we would misinterpret God's works, God's acts, God's redemptive events in human history. Just like the crucifixion, just like the resurrection. So for instance, hey look, the parting of the Red Sea. Well that's obviously a a lunar eclipse of the sun. 
No, 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 no. That's the, that's the God of the sea, and he's angry. You know, or no, that must be sea monsters fighting. The Kraken's coming out, right? This is what we do. Or look, hey, look, Jesus dying on the cross. What did the folks say in the text? He saved others. Can't save himself. We misinterpret. We can't see it. We do things like, well, man, all hope is lost now. I honestly was beginning to have hope that he was something more than a man. Now he's just like all the other messianic hopes that have come and gone and they end in death. And I guess we get all worked up for another one. Hey, look, an empty tomb. Wow, the disciples must have stolen the body. And you know, that, that Roman centurion, that Roman expert in death, he just got it wrong. Jesus wasn't dead. He was half dead. He just hadn't seen the Princess Bride movie yet, right? The Bible is filled, filled with the works of God and God's messages and interpretations about those works and all of our wrong interpretations of those same works. We've already seen it in Mark. The religious leaders interpret Jesus. They see Jesus. They see what he does. They see his acts. They see his performances. They see his work. They interpret it wrongly every time. The crowds. The crowds get it wrong every time. Even the disciples get it wrong every time. The only people that got it right were a bleeding woman, a leper, and a demon man. If left to ourselves, you and I do not expect a resurrection. So what do we need? I mean, what's going to help us? What do we need more than anything in all the world, you and me, right now in an honest conversation? What do you need right now? Here's the answer. The resurrection of Jesus. And you're like, whoa, wait, 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 what are you talking about? You and I need the resurrection of Jesus. We need a historical event outside of us, done whether we believe it or not, done whether we feel anything for it or not, done whether we're cognizant of what's taking place or not. We need God to do something definitive. We need God to do something that's definitive and cosmic and objective and done in such a way that it doesn't depend upon us. That he does it all. And if he does it all, there's actual hope for us. We need, as, and as he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. I love this. He is risen. He is not here. Before the resurrection, only a rare handful of people got Jesus. After the resurrection, the floodgates have opened. All heaven has been unleashed. New life, new eyes, new spiritual sight, new identity, new freedom, new flourishing, new sense of approaching careers, new sense of relating to people, new sense of becoming more human, new life. And Jesus says, of course, I'm making all things new. The resurrection of Jesus is a defining deliverance event. And what this resurrection means is this. 
God has now accepted the work of Christ on your behalf and my behalf. The resurrection tells us God has accepted Christ's work on your and my behalf. You know what that means? And how do we know? Because he raised him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was done on our behalf. It was done in a work that he was doing. And when, if God left Jesus in the ground, he did not accept Jesus' work on our behalf. And that's why Paul says, I have nothing to tell you. It's kind of over for us because our hope was only on him. If he lived a good life, we live a good life. If he dies and takes the payment for our sin, our sin is taken care of. If he rises from the dead and God validates it and justifies him and accepts him and approves of him and gives him the stamp of a validating performance record, then we got it. If God welcomes him and takes him in and makes him king and the kingdom of God has come, then we're in. If not, we're gone. If not, it's all over. How do we know the cross paid the cosmic payment for our sin? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. No, 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 because I feel it? No. If you're going to wait till you to feel it, you're going to have lots of problems the rest of your life. Because the wrong circumstance and the wrong comment from somebody, and you're going to feel condemned. You're going to feel like you blew it in your performance. And the answer is, yeah, you probably did. Well, then how do I know my shame's been taken away? How do I know my sin's been paid for? How do I know there's no more cosmic guilt? How do I know that this low-grade fever of shame and guilt shouldn't be there? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. It's over. It's done. It's finished. There's now no condemnation. He is risen. Okay, well, how do I know that the old drive, that old drive that that Paul calls in Galatians the foundational elemental principle of the world, the most basic drive in all the world, in every human heart, how do I know that old drive to perform, that old drive to prove myself, for you to prove yourself, to God, to others, to yourself? How do you know that old drive is done? It's over. It's a thing of the past. You don't need it anymore to find justification. You don't need it anymore to make yourself complete. You don't need it anymore because God raised Jesus from the dead. It's over. It's done. It's finished. Christ's righteousness is now your righteousness. He's alive. Okay. How do you know, like right now in present time, you're looking for a joy and peace that seems to be talked about in the Bible? I mean, Paul says in Romans, may God fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you may abound in hope, right? Okay, well, how do I grow in that? How do you get that in the present? How do, I, how do you know you're going to have power and strength and grace to forgive someone that you need to forgive, to actually love someone and serve someone? How are you going to do that when you start recognizing the relational realities in your life, start revealing stuff about you, and you're trying to wrestle through life change? You're trying to wrestle through being used by God. You're trying to be an instrument for him. How are you going to know you're going to have strength and power and life to do that? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. You Wait a minute, not a spiritual technique? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. Wait, 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 not because I do something? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. It's over, it's done, it's finished. Grace now is touching every area life. 
Last one. And this is for, I say this for my dear older friends. I say this for my parents. I say this for Evelyn. I say this for, we're a young congregation, so we think we're going to live forever. I say this for Lori, and Carson and William, and Yvonne, and the Dykstra's family. How do you know that God will restore the world one day? That he will reweave what is unweaving right now? How do you know? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. It's over. It's done. It's finished. He is risen. The resurrection changes everything, friends. McGrath says, for Luther, the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ, is to be seen with the eyes of the heart. What he's talking about is faith. Now, please hear me. There's a difference between faith and rationally understanding. Remember, the disciples got a whole... They got the best lesson on the resurrection than anyone's ever going to get. Jesus taught him himself, and they still didn't get it. For Luther, the crucified and resurrected Christ is to be seen with the eyes of the heart, not simply intellectually dissected, which leads only to theological abstraction, Luther says. So what we need to do is we not only need to understand what's happening at the resurrection, the stuff we're talked about, but this... This has to be actually affirmed and understood, but it has to now be relied upon. You have, to, you have to lean into it and trust it. You have to see that the resurrection is real and is your confidence and your rest and reliance in this area of your life, in this way you respond to this, and in this way you handle in all areas of your life, the resurrection has to be that kind of power. So here, with the eyes of your heart, or the ears of your heart, see with your eyes a sermon that was preached in the first church service in the history of the world by Peter. I just want, We did this on Friday night, but I want you to listen to the last part. Rest in this. Rely in this. Rejoice in this. Here it is. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up and loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held down by death. Listen to the angels. He is risen. He's not here. He is risen. He's not here. 